0: autofocus literary podcast i am still michael and
1: i am barely ryan
0: you all right let's unpack that i'm great let's go on
1: every time we get it we start a podcast last time it was my mustache this (laughs) time i'm blonde um and i'm in the hand tattoo club now
0: you look great
1: thanks the tattoo things have happened i I, I Mm -hmm. appreciate it um and i just yeah, I feel like every time we do a podcast, something change, changes. So, you know, it's great.
0: Well, if you're following along on YouTube. <laughs> you oh,
1: can, yeah, we have a you YouTube You can channel. follow
0: along with Ryan's identity crisis.
1: <laughs> Quarter life, I guess, maybe. I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I've got more of the midlife one going. Oh, no, I'm coming out of my midlife one. So
1: Coming out of your midlife.
0: Yeah, I've been coming out of my midlife crisis for a long time. <laughs>
1: All right. I headed it a little good early. luck to me I guess should we say
0: that this literary magazine is like an extension of the last part of my midlife crisis
1: no is it? let's, not, let's <laughs> not unpack that right now I think I just
0: said that on the recording Shit.
1: <laughs> um yeah no okay well anything else going on um not really how about you uh
0: I got a lot going on Oh, yeah. But I don't really know what's going to happen. So I might be moving. I might not be moving. Yeah. Big things. Um, a lot of things are like, I'm supposed to find out a lot of different things soon. This is really cagey and weird. I probably shouldn't even say it on a recording, but whatever. It's recording. And I don't feel like starting over.
1: I get at least one call from you <laughs> basically, basically daily that I almost look forward to now. Then <laughs> I'm just like, all right, what's What's new? What's happening? Is everything okay?
0: <laughs> and as soon as you five. say
1: something crazy happened, I expect one thing, and it's a total. But it's just something else pivot. different now. Yeah. yeah.
0: But anyway,
1: this this episode this
0: episode's not about us. This episode is about two different writers, um, both of whom had books published with Borough Press this year. Uh, one is Ariel Francisco, who uh, wrote a book of poems called "A Sinking Ship Is Still a Ship." and the other is Alicia Sachin, whose book with Burrow Press is called A Fish Growing Lungs. This is a book of essays. And uh, in our episode um, that you're gonna hear, we talk, um, we just basically have an organic conversation. um, Well, first a little bit about their books, but then an organic conversation um, about all things autobiographical writing um, in poetry and an essay and uh, really all sorts of stuff. Um, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I like to think they did.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I did too. This was one of those where afterwards I felt, I mean, it was, I feel like it was really late when we recorded, but, um, it's always late when we record, so I, well, (laughs) because I have my
0: kids, but anyway, sorry, I cut you off.
1: No, but it's just like, it was, it was like late and, you know, but afterwards I felt so energized and Mm. like, I felt really good after this interview.
0: Yeah. So did I. Um, and um, so Borough Press is one of my favorite um, small presses out there, Uh, and they just started their new round of subscriptions uh, for the 2021 catalog, so I encourage you to check out the new books they're coming out with this year. They look really cool, and uh, it's a great way to support them and to get some really cool stuff in the mail. So, I mean, last year, I didn't know who Ariel and Alicia were, and I got their books in the mail, and I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. these are great, and now Mm -hmm. we're talking to them on the podcast so you mm-hmm. never know what's going to happen if you get this subscription from burrow yeah, i suppose it, it was
1: yeah it was it was great and i uh, especially appreciated um i mean both both readings which are on our youtube page too mm-hmm. um but it was really cool to see like some of the best moments i i i personally found from their book mm-hmm. i know ariel asked to like for us to pick our favorite poems that he could read yeah which is really cool so
0: well, I don't know that he asked. We made requests.
1: <laughs> and I don't recall he, that. And he allowed us to. <laughs> Is that what this. happened? I totally forgot. Yeah.
0: That's the way I remember it. I was like, could you read this one?
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then I just chimed in at the end. Like, hey, by the way. Yeah, yeah you're right. You're at least right. you
0: had one too. Um, yeah. So if, if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, when we have people on the pod, we uh, try to get them to do like a five minute reading uh, from their work. And then we throw it up on our YouTube channel. And we encourage you to check those out as well. In addition to our new issue, issue three, which is on autofocuslit.com right now. Um, We have two poems and our longest essay yet. And it's all wonderful work as always. Of course, we're biased.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, so I'm gonna tie this into my tattoo. Okay, please do. Like every time I get a tattoo, I'm like, oh, that's my favorite. But then I look back, I'm like, but they're, you know, whatever. Oh, they, i just feel like each issue i get more excited i don't know i get really excited with these well now. that's
0: the way it's supposed to be right yeah but we're also just you know outdoing ourselves every time as if we're really outdoing anything we're <laughs> we just like yeah. what we're doing i guess yeah is that okay to say we really
1: like yeah, what we're doing it's and,
0: fun. and we really love the pieces we've been publishing. Damn it. And we like have really some really love. Yeah. And we have some really great stuff coming.
1: Look, I know I'm month. a cancer Sun and a Scorpio moon. Sorry. I, I cut you off.
0: I don't even know what that means. So I want you just, to just,
1: um, and so I'm like, basically just, I'm an emotional wreck as is. <laughs> like I, I watched love Simon four times and I cried every time. Uh-huh. And, and in these pieces too, specifically, like that we that we just published i mean mm-hmm. like they're all so this is an emotional issue yeah it's a powerful like the best one. way possible yeah
0: yeah uh i'd agree with that yeah well anything else before we move into our conversation i feel like i'm usually the one who forgets something so okay
1: i got you ready twitter instagram uh- <laughs> <laughs> we're on those we're on those. give at- us a follow
0: at autofocus lit oh yeah thank you
1: (laughs) give us a follow um and if you feel so inclined uh submit
0: yes please so uh, we're taking submissions so we're also taking submissions If you go to our about page we're also taking um panel submissions for the podcast um so one thing we're going to be doing is um you know obviously we have these ones where we interview writers with books recently out um but um you know conference type panels that you might have done at like awp or something like that Um, you can actually uh, submit to us and uh, if we think it's um, right for us essentially we'll basically turn the podcast over to you and uh, we'll stay out of it and then uh, release it basically cut an intro for it and um, yeah so check out our about page if that sounds good to you and if not then don't worry about it okay and then eventually you'll hear a panel that we have nothing really to do with and and that's about it all right so without delay now and I don't think we're forgetting anything else. I don't think so, but uh, if there is, next <laughs> next episode, I'll mention it. Okay, sounds good. All right, so here is our conversation with Ariel Francisco and Alicia Sachin. All right, so I know both of your books came out with Borough Press this year in 2020, and I know Alicia's here is a fish growing lungs. You call it your orange baby, right?
2: (laughs) I do, I do, my orange baby.
0: (laughs) Would you tell um, our listeners, um, you know, in your words about the book?
2: Yeah, um, so I guess in my own words, uh, I, when I first started writing this, I uh, had always thought of it not so much as an essay collection as Uh, like linked essays. So more like a linked story collection, Uh, but that doesn't really exist in the nonfiction branding world. Um, But since I get my own words, like in my heart of hearts, like that's what it is. That's how I understood it to be. Um, And it's about misdiagnosed bipolar disorder. And it takes apart the various uh, symptoms, conditions that led to that misdiagnosis and sort of the unraveling of that.
0: Yeah, hearing you kind of describe it as like the linked essay story thing. I almost like when I read it, I thought, I felt that, like you could call it like a memoir and essays. Does that?
2: I think Ryan called it that at one oh, point. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah.
0: I, Brian, if you're not familiar, Ryan Revis is oh, the yeah, publisher. Of <laughs> you're good.
2: Um. Yeah, and I mean, like I have, strong opinions about like the what we call things Mm -hmm. you know and in that I think it's dumb most of the time (laughs) that's my strong opinion is I think it's dumb um and often it's just like a way to sell books but you know um yeah I think memoir and essays could also work for it the reason I it's not that I don't like the term essay collection I do like that term but there's some essay collections that are like You know really close knit and they like cleave really tightly around like a central idea or event and then there are some essay collections which are literally just like you know a deep sea trawler of like an author's writing over the past 20 years or something Mm -hmm. and both are wonderful but like they're you know it doesn't help me when i pick up a book and they're like oh it's an essay collection like cool cool not helpful you know the kinds
1: of essays And then it's like, you know, you go to a bookstore, and you see fiction. And then I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, where do I go if I want to find a specific kind of mm-hmm. fiction? You know what I mean? Like, that's the dilemma there, too.
0: Yeah, you go to a Barnes and Noble, and then there's like, 1000s of rows of fiction. And then there's like, <laughs> this like, tiny little section with like essays. It's so depressing. And <laughs> it like- makes me so upset. <laughs>
2: I worked at barnes and noble in high
0: school and yeah, i worked I, there not in high school but yeah i worked there <laughs> well, in college like, oh I ariel you want to make it for <laughs>
3: uh i worked out at a book culture so bookstore <laughs> all right we'll but, keep okay. We'll, okay. We'll, we'll, okay
0: we'll work make it work yeah, yeah. um but so the reason i mentioned you know maybe i know it's a, a weird term but like a memoir and essays is because it, it feels like when you're reading the essays that there's like the kind of like all of them together kind of make like the almost like a, a traditional memoir arc, arc where there's like, it like starts with trouble <laughs> and then kind of like toward the end of the book, there's more like the healing going on. Does is that, is that, does that sound right to you or am I?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, it was like, I didn't want a straight up traditional memoir, you know, with like the mm-hmm. redemption arc and like, I'm right. married. Uh, <laughs> But um I also like felt like I wanted to give the reader a still a sense of the arc, even if the arc is like, you know, a treadmill, you know, like a yeah. progress you make on a treadmill or something. Yeah. Um so yeah, and and they are like chronological, um, like loosely in the way that I understand them. So
0: um, and I know the title of the book, which is such a great title. Um, it's like a line that appears in two different essays right
2: um yeah but I know
0: that so the reason I'm bringing it up is because I've seen I don't know if it's like you say it in the book or in the acknowledgments or maybe I saw it online but like you say like you you're not good with titles or you like you hate titles or something
2: yeah you saw that online probably I can't remember (laughs) yeah um so So how did the
0: so how did the title come about I guess is what my question is
2: yeah, so um, I have what I like to call a jukebox brain. And so by that, I mean like the first 20 to 40 titles I come up with are just like bad puns <laughs> of other titles. Um, and so the original title for this manuscript was uh, Notes from the Cliff Face. And that was also originally the title of the um, the cocaine essay in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what it got accepted under. But I never like loved the title. Uh-huh. Um, and at a certain point, Ryan and I, Ryan Revis and I, were talking, and I, you know, he could just tell that I was like unsatisfied with it. And so I was tasked with coming up with like a bunch of different title possibilities. So I, I literally had to like go through reread my book again. <laughs> and come up with like a list of like 40 more titles. And Ryan and I pretty much just like went down the list and this was the one we liked the best. Um, and then uh, part of the revision process then afterward was just like going back through and like making a few small tweaks to like cohere the fishiness. Um, <laughs> so for example, the, uh, the gutted essay was not originally titled gutted, um, mm. deep sea creatures, not originally titled deep sea right. creatures. And like nothing about the essay substantially changed, but it's just like these small things thinking about the book as a whole object rather than just like, you know, taking 12 discrete things and Mm -hmm. putting them between two covers. That
0: is important to me in reading essay collections. I know you said they're both great, but I personally have trouble getting through books where there's no kind of thematic link between the essays where it's like you don't, I guess you can kind of read them however you want but so I like when I read an essay collection I, I like to be compelled to read them in order <laughs> and to feel like there's some sort of movement between the two but to segue I guess another very well titled book <laughs> uh, is this one here if you're watching on YouTube, A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship um, and so Ariel if you would tell us in your own words um, about your book
3: yeah uh so on the surface it's it's a collection of poems about how much i hate miami and how much i hate florida um and and how absurd it is to live in a place that's literally sinking and and no one seems to care you know um but really and what's been kind of fun i think because it came out after i left florida um and People's reaction seems to me that it's a book with a lot of love and a lot of like deep seated emotions towards the place, um, which is true as well. So it, it kind of holds, you know, it's, um, I've described it before as this, um, as like a teenager yelling at his stepdad, right? Like, you're not my real dad. <laughs> it's kind of the, it's kind of one of the vibes of the book. It's like, I'm in the wrong, you know, like the the emotions feel real, but also like um, I'm sometimes in the wrong there with, with how I feel about it. Um, and yeah, it, the, the book really came out of, I think not so much that I disliked it, but that I had been there too long. Um, I moved to Orlando from New York when I was five and then we moved to Miami when I was 11, um, cause my parents split and my mom got remarried. And so being in Miami was always a negative thing to me, right? Cause it it was, you know, impossible to kind of, um, separate that from from what happened with my parents so I always disliked it from the very beginning you know you can imagine me I was like 11 like in middle school just like this miserable little kid (laughs) just like unhappy with with the place that I was in Um, and yeah I just I stayed there for too long I wanted to come to New York um, because it was my hometown I have a lot of family here but also for like all the writing and art stuff and on a very practical level because I hate driving and I wanted to live in a place where I could walk around, um, where I, where I lived in Miami, you know, it was like a 15 minute walk just to get to the bus stop, just to get somewhere, you know? Um, so, uh, this, yeah, the book really came out of living in Miami for, uh, I'm bad at math, 17 years, 11 to 28, um, which is, you know, more than enough time, (laughs) uh, to be in a single place. Um, and and kind of writing my way out of Florida I think that's what really happened it was just like I'm out of here you know kind of not really burning the city down while I'm leaving but but kind of a little bit or at least pretending to mm-hmm. um yeah and and something there's a poem in my in my first book called uh, Magic City Ruse which <laughs> I remember bringing it to workshop uh and my, my teacher, Campbell McGrath, his immediate reaction was like, this is way too bitter, like what's going on here? Um, but then upon reading again, he was like, well, no, it's kind of like um, so exaggerated that, that it kind of works. And that, that really, that poem opened the floodgate to this book because uh, I didn't know that I was doing that. That poem came out of um, literally driving to South Beach because because it's Miami, one of the best poetry venues is this fancy hotel on South Beach uh, and it was a poetry reading at, like, 7 p.m. on a Friday night. And it took me, like, 45 minutes to get there and another 45 minutes to find parking. And I was just, like, in a rage. <laughs> um, and, and but but that gave me this kind of um, poem writing space where I could be, like, you know, nobody really thinks I want the city to sink into the ocean. But when you say that, it kind of expresses this, this, this. Um, this kind of hyperbole of of feeling, right? This sort of it's so exaggerated uh that you can't think, you know, I'm not like a super villain, you know what I mean? Um <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of fun to to write some of these um these sinking city poems. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And to jump in real quick, as someone who's lived in Florida all my life, uh West Palm area, so kind of south, not <laughs> yeah, Miami, yeah. but it made me reconceptualize kind of take a step back as someone who's not from Florida, looking at it, you know, you get like the art basil and the pastels of Key West. And then the thing that stuck with me, I I forget what poem it was in, but the phrase, the great rotting flower, like that's something that I'm just like, so like specific and like visceral to me as that. So I just, yeah, it was really interesting to kind of get that new concept of a place I'm so familiar with.
3: Right. Yeah. That's, and uh, that's been part of the fun too. I think people from Florida uh, read the book one way and people who have never been there, it's like, oh, this is a different side of the stereotype that I see on TV, you know? Um, So that's been a a
0: really cool reaction also. Yeah. I want to ask you about, so for readers not familiar, it's a bilingual book. On, yeah. And for each poem, on one side there's um, your poem, and then on the other there's the the, the Spanish translation. So I, I wonder if you could um, talk about kind of how that came to be. So I know you're a translator, um, and um, but you didn't translate the book. Um, yeah. So I guess my question is a, a few, and I'll let you <laughs> go on it. But like, <laughs> uh, are, do you know the translator? And then um, the other thing I was thinking or my question is kind of like, is there, like in the translation world, which I know absolutely nothing about, unfortunately, is there some sort of like ethical thing against translating your own book? Um, or has has anyone, like, I know there are writers uh, who, who translated their own books before, like Nabokov has translated his own books before, but um, at least I think he has. Um, did it ever come up that you might translate it? Or how did you choose the translator? And I suppose just all those things I said
3: <laughs> yeah um so it's it's kind of insane and very I think indicative of how I do things which is like very uh it's like part disciplined and hard working but also incredibly sloppy and just kind of chaotic um so the the book originally had a, a different press it was the same press that that did my first book uh and we had a falling out I won't get super into it um but we, I had a it was a, it was a whole thing with the guy who runs the press. Basically I didn't want to be associated anymore. Um, And so the book didn't come out when it was supposed to, I'm forgetting even now, I think it was supposed to come out uh, maybe in the spring of 2019 or sometime that year. And it, and, and I pulled it and it was in like the proof process and everything when, when I pulled it from them Um, and it wasn't bilingual at the time. Right. Um, So I was, I was kind of sending it out again and querying places. Um, and I had a friend who was doing some online stuff for Burrow cause they have like a small lit mag component. Um, so he was fantastic some kind of Florida. online editor.
0: Say again? I was just saying fantastic Florida.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't <laughs> know if he the was the, of the, the of editor for that, but it was, yeah, yeah, he was oh, involved okay. with somehow. So um, I hit him up. He was a classmate of mine at FIU. And I asked him if when Burrow is open for submissions, because I had this manuscript now that was kind of floating and you know, it would be a perfect fit, a Florida book for Florida Press. Um, and he offered to show it to, to Ryan uh, and then Ryan really liked it. And, and then, so we got in touch that way. Um, and since the book had been delayed, uh, I just thought it would be awesome to do it bilingually. Um, and I had originally wanted my, my dad to translate it because uh, my dad's a poet. Um, I wanted him to translate my first book and It came out in 2017 and now two years later he had done like 10 poems (laughs) uh and i was like all right he he probably can't deal with with the time frame we had a we had a pretty tight time frame um because when they got the book versus when they wanted it to come out um relative to the when it was supposed to come out right um so we had like six months maybe less to to try and get it translated Um, so I quite literally I went on Twitter and I was like, hey, does anyone want to translate my book in (laughs) Spanish? Um and Nico reached out. Um, and I, I didn't know him at all. And he he messaged me and he messaged me with a translation of my poem that had been in the New Yorker um as like a sample. Uh and I thought it was great. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Uh, and he gave us a draft in like a month. It was incredible. I don't know how he works or like how that happened, um, but yeah, yeah we just, great. we just managed to knock it out. We couldn't quite. So if um, so, like the galleys were not bilingual cause it wasn't quite ready at that point. That's how much uh, the timeline was kind of compressed, um, but he really nailed it. I mean, it was really incredible. And because I also translate, I know that uh, translators need space and the translation is the translator's creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I let him do whatever he felt he needed to do. Um, those very little meddling or editing that I did to his translation. Um, I think really it was only um, uh, objective things like uh, a proper name, right? Or like something that he, he misunderstood in a very literal way, um, but, but very few of those. Um, and I would, I would never, to, to your other question, I would never translate myself I think because uh, that's so it's so bizarre to me um, to be honest it would yeah. just be like kind of uh, like if you looked in the mirror and your reflection moved but you didn't you it's kind of like wait huh. what? Mm-hmm. what is happening here um, yeah and it's it's just kind of awesome to release the work to someone else in that way you know to the so the translations are his it's like someone else's version of my work is is super super interesting to me
0: yeah that makes sense to me yeah. Um, and because it's
3: a Miami book, I forgot to mention, I mean, that's one of the big reasons I wanted it to be in Spanish, also, is because uh, Miami is a bilingual city. Uh, it's a multilingual city, really. Uh, and one of the coolest things that's happened is friends of mine buying the book for their parents, who mostly are only read and speak in Spanish, um, not because they have a particular interest in poetry, but just because, you know, the book is really for them. It's where they live and in the language that they speak, uh, that's been the coolest thing. I think that's that's ever happened to me.
0: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. There's, or I, I imagine that there's like certain kinds of poems and like tones and styles that are probably easier to translate than others. And I, and and your poems have this really. I want to say simple, but that's that's not the right word because they're not simple. They're they're. <laughs> they're just really, they're clean and they're direct in a way and just really vivid and, and kind of condensed um, um, and, and funny, at least in English. So I wonder, I wonder um, how, like translating the humor in the poems, I wonder like, what, what that might have been like. Um, do you have any experience uh, with, with your translating? Um, is it difficult to translate humor into other languages?
3: um i i don't think i've encountered any humor in the stuff that i translate i translate mm-hmm. um i translate my dad's poems but i've been translating a lot from the dominican republic um during the revolution in 1965 um so not a lot of humor uh right. in, in the in their <laughs> civil war um but i i did a i did a reading. Um, and I, I recorded an event for the Miami Book Fair. Uh, so I've read with Nico twice. Uh, and so I, I can't quote him exactly, but he talked about um, kind of what you're saying, what he liked about my own poems and what he felt like he could connect with was like that clarity. He talked a lot about the, the imagery, right? Cause yeah. I do use a lot of imagery. And so yeah. that was something that he could see in his mind's eye and understand and then be able to replicate that in Spanish. Um, So he, yeah, he, he talked a little bit about why he felt like he could translate the work well. Um, and he did it well too. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, you know, to not in like an egotistical way, like it was great to hear somebody talk about how much they like my work.
0: Oh, that's the greatest thing in the world though.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But, but it's, it's kind of the best compliment, uh, when it comes from someone who's translated because translating is, is such a bizarre thing. It's like, um, it uh my brain's not working what's that thing where they try to turn lead into gold right like alchemy because you know it's the medium is the language so they really have to replicate the yeah. thing it, you, using a totally different language um it's kind of amazing and and even more amazing to to do it well
0: so one thing i want to ask you and then a, kind of the same inverse question back to alicia so for you ariel i want to ask do you also ever do prose did you start in poetry and or did you start in prose and move to poetry and then alicia when he's done if you you can kind of take over um have you always been writing in nonfiction? did you start in fiction do you work in other forms do you do poems so i just kind of want to hear about if you do and the differences between so ariel
3: yeah um i don't almost like aggressively um (laughs) i've (laughs) (laughs) I've wanted to but I, I just can't I've been very prose diverse um, for a long time I think any of my friends could like uh, speak to that and probably my teachers too to be honest um, and it, it's always been really difficult for me and when I was in grad school I mean I'm back in grad school now for translation when I was doing poetry uh, and when I felt like I finally figured it out that's all I cared to read right so from like, age 22 to 25, it was just all poetry all the time. And not exaggerating, I like sentences stopped making sense. Like even writing a response for a class or like a, a final paper, it was just like, putting words in this order doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tried in, well, a funny thing at, at FIU, we had to take a cross genre workshop, right? So all the poets had to take a fiction workshop, all the fiction people had to take a poetry workshop. I was really upset about having to take a fiction workshop. Um, <laughs> and uh, the poem in my book, uh, Eating Dinner Alone at the 163rd Street Mall, that that was written immediately after leaving a fiction workshop one day. I was just in, in such a foul mood uh, about having to do that. But I took a I took a lyric essay class because um, I wanted to figure out how to crack prose. It wasn't fiction. I tried the lyric essay. I got nothing. I tried literary journalism. I took a literary journalism class and, and just couldn't, you know, that didn't do much for me either. Um, so I think my, it, this is kind of cheating, but I think my second genre is translating and I only translate poetry mm. pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a win-win for me is that I still continue to engage with um, the only the only genre that, that really pulls me, but in a different way. Um, but what's happening now is I have to now write like, uh, like a forward to a translation collection, right? So now I still have to figure um. out at least some kind of, of prose thing uh and make it make sense uh so we'll see how that goes but yeah i've i've tried i think i wrote two very short stories in that fiction workshop um one about a ufo and one about the skunk ape and i don't think my teacher was super happy (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i've i've been unable to uh, but I definitely have to write some kind of nonfiction mode now, and and hopefully that goes well. But I've always wanted to write essays. Yeah, it it's a seems like it would make sense, but I still can't quite crack it. But but I plan to hopefully.
0: Yeah, the poet's essay collection or the poet's novel are big things right now, aren't they? The poet moving into prose is like a thing that I feel like that's happening a lot. Um, yeah, but,
3: yeah. Uh, Alicia. And I'm going in the opposite okay. direction. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> good for they you. Think
3: like, what's <laughs> less profitable than poetry? Probably poetry and translation.
0: Uh, Alicia, same question, but the inverse to you.
2: Yeah, um, I've worked in most many, many genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, in high school, I wrote poetry, but like, let's not talk about that. Right. Um, <laughs> um, in college, I, um, my undergrad is actually in fiction. Um, mostly because like there wasn't a nonfiction track offered. Um, but all my fiction was like fiction. Um mm-hmm. and then I got away from creative writing for a little while and got a master's and then sort of like fell into a nonfiction writing class um during my master's program. And I was just hooked. Um and when I applied to MFA's. I applied to both fiction and nonfiction. I only got into the nonfiction programs. So I took the hint. Um and the my MFA was like pretty multi-genre. Um and so I I've written in all the genres. Uh I mean, yeah, like I've I've written some poems that have been published. Um, I honestly I think I struggle the most now with short stories, um, just because like Plot is not like what do you mean causality? Like cause and <laughs> effect? Like uh, uh, um, that's I don't I don't really enjoy that. Um, but I think sometimes. So I listened to Therese Carmody in your conversation, mm-hmm. and um, I was thinking about what. Wait, I mean, I was I did do that, but why is this connecting in my mind? Something about Ocean Vuong's book, like oh, she mentioned the BuzzFeed poem. Oh,
0: Ryan, Ryan did, I think, actually.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah. But yeah, so yeah it does not matter.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: Um, And so I, I've read both, I've read the book, but, um, and then I like listened to, anyway, I, sorry, I, I'm getting a little bit scattered. What I'm trying to say is when I first read On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, I read it as very, I read it as much more nonfiction than the way that he himself describes the process of writing it. And I found that to be very surprising. Um, and so I think... I have a lot of strong feelings also about like genre between fiction and nonfiction. <laughs> um, but this is just all just to say, I, I write in, I think I've written in all the genres to mm-hmm. some extent. Um, I do prefer nonfiction and occasionally poetry, mm-hmm. um, would be like the, the succinct answer to the yeah. question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, wait, can, go ahead, Ryan.
1: I was going to say, so speaking, so along the lines of genre fiction non-fiction there was a line in notes from the cliff face that the best way i can ex- explain it is it slapped me as i was reading which was like kind of <laughs> like the i was like <laughs> i can't get too teachery but i was like it's, it's a very the violent <laughs> no but it, the line was something like um it's complicated even in medicine to parse truth from fiction mm-hmm. and, and it really just like stuck with me and it was one of those sentences i had to take a breath with and and so i was wondering if you could kind of talk to that idea both as a writer and a person with with memory and non-fiction
2: yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> if it's possible I, I just let me just like take a sip of water no um so, okay so I I I think genre genre is dumb um mostly <laughs> because like because I think a lot of people take a lot of liberties when they write nonfiction, like I think genre is important to the extent that, like, I write nonfiction, and so what I write is true to the best of my ability.
3: Sure.
2: Um, but like, so many novels, especially like if you think like, you know, mid like 1900s type of no- novels, were like <laughs> not, you know, you would you could call them memoir, <laughs> yeah. um, probably. And mm-hmm. I think that like the way that some people treat memoir could be treated as fictive for some, you know, yeah, accounts. Absolutely. And so like, I just don't, I don't know. And and I think now more and more like the idea about like what a novel air quotes like should look like is sort of disintegrating, which I think is a great thing to be clear. Um, but so I just, I feel like I'm getting away from your question. Um, <laughs> the idea of like what is true and what is not true, it's like, you know there's so much subjectivity and it's it's hard to like parse you know the difference between like okay so um I remember this thing happening when I was a kid right and like I tell my dad like this thing happened my dad's like that absolutely did not happen what are you talking about and my mom's like I don't remember <laughs> that's different than like holocaust deniers right like right. so Yes. You know, and and I think like that's sort of the uh, one of the like biggest sort of tensions that I think I'm constantly grappling with in my work is the idea that like I really really want there to be just like one thing or the other, mm-hmm. and I do not like the complication of like that in between space. But that is really like all we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, yeah. trying to uh, hold like those contrasting ideas in my mind at the same time as my life's work maybe, I, I'm not really sure. But even on like a an interpersonal level, like when you think about, or when I think about, um, so like the, I'll just, I'm just gonna, I actually, I had a rule for myself, I have a rule for myself, which is never be petty in writing. And this is like bordering that because this is recorded. <laughs> but I'm just gonna go for it. Do it. Um, so that house I was living in with all those people, um one of them <clears throat> uh you start, I'm like trying to think out how to say this diplomatically. So like one of them used to like make racist jokes toward me um with some with occasional frequency. And like I'm sure if you ask him, that is not at all like how he remembers that situation. Like, I'm sure it's not like, I'm sure he was just like, Alicia's a really jokey person. We Mm. joke around like she's always mean. I was just joking like a hundred percent. I guarantee you like that's his opinion of his experience of reality, right? And so it's like, okay, you have all these people looking at the world and coming out with like a different understanding of what's happening. What do you do with that? And I think nonfiction is interesting because a lot of it, like the writing I do at least tries to like, take it apart, like all Mm. that looking, Um, but it doesn't always make for like the most, let's say smooth reading experience, you know what I mean? Mm. (laughs) Like, how do you tell, how do you write a scene and at the same time acknowledge that like, did we record this? No, (laughs) so how do we know this is what really happened? Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also like the idea of like, the other person involved in i mean apology was a huge example of that for me from doctor's notes to mother to friend and nirvana and so it's kind of crafting the author as a character through another lens too so that was a really interesting kind of delve to kind of go into
2: um i don't know if you saw this amber sparks on I think it was amber sparks but on twitter recently she's like what's the most like on brand thing piece of art that like you did not create but every time you you read it you're like oh i wish i had written that um and so one of mine is jesus son by dennis johnson whom mm. i've met so like i don't oh, really claim to aspire to like his level of brilliance or anything like that but just like i love that book so much yeah, um, especially the first the end of that first Car crash while hitchhiking, yeah. right? The end where there's like and I talk about this line in my book. Yeah,
0: in right? the book. Yeah. The
2: narrator breaks the fourth wall. And I think like that that has like influenced like a lot of how I think about myself as a narrator in nonfiction is just mm-hmm. like that moment where like the guy like is just like, what what do you want from me? <laughs> um yeah. So that, that's was- kind of what's, the line? Her what's her?
0: the line again you is like and you you stupid like people the, you you
2: expect me to help you yeah it's yeah here.
0: You, yes here. <laughs> I re- it says that in the book right that yeah you have it does <laughs> yeah. um so one question i have also for both of you is about um persona versus person uh in your work so i know like for instance ariel i know you've admitted to your work being autobiographical um uh, so I guess for both of you, my one question I have is to what degree is the you in Ariel, your, your poems and Alicia in your essays, to what degree is the you, you, and then to what degree is it a construction of you, if that makes sense. Whoever wants to jump in is fine. Um,
3: <clears throat> I think in a this might not make sense but I think it's both at the same time you know um it's kind of like it's kind of like social media where it's like Mm -hmm. yeah this is Mm -hmm. a picture Mm -hmm. of me and maybe this happened but like you know when you post it and how it's still very constructed you know what I mean yeah Mm -hmm. um so like my poems like yeah they're yeah they're pretty much all autobiographical but where the changes are are kind of mundane so like what I think the most egregious example is uh the poem about letting the alligator cross the street Mm -hmm. that happened to my dad he just sent me a picture of it and I was like oh this would make for a cool poem but it won't make any sense in the book if I have it if I write it from my dad's point of view because that doesn't add anything um so I just swapped this out which it, on the surface might seem egregious, but really the poem is about the alligator, right? And, right. and the kind of visual that that creates. Um, so I make those kind of changes. And and to Alicia's point earlier, um, I talked to my dad a lot. Um, and he, my dad, he, he could have been a stand-up comedian. I mean, he just loves having an audience. He'll tell stories and anecdotes constantly. Uh, and he's always been this way. And so I might write a poem based on something he told me 15 years ago and I don't ask for clarification I don't ask for details uh when I write it I just I write it as I remember it and and I think because it's a poem uh I can definitely get away with more because the the question of real or not isn't asked as much Mm -hmm. um but that's something that I do and then I end up you know sometimes it's totally off so like in my uh in my first book I have a of a poem imagining my grandfather um my dad's dad, uh, who came here from the Dominican Republic, I have a poem, imagining him walking from the Bronx all the way down through Manhattan, kind of looking for a job. Cause I knew uh, where his first job was. I forget it now, but it was some hotel in like Midtown. And um, and then, and, But I just, I didn't know where my grandfather had come to in New York. I had assumed it was the Bronx. Cause that's where I was born and that's where my parents met. And that's kind of where our family came from. But he came to Brooklyn. <laughs> uh and so like that that I thought I was like oh I'll reimagine it and that's a kind of nonfiction. but really it just ended up being totally totally fiction because I didn't I didn't even have that information to work with um but yeah it's it's definitely both it's definitely a a version of me that is constructed but it's not where it deviates it's it's not meant to fool anyone you know Mm -hmm. it's not meant to like hide anything um it's it's kind of meant to you know it's hopefully very obviously like I'm this very limited person and I'm constantly the unreliable narrator and everything you see is filtered through, uh, you know my point of view. Because um, what I do want is for the poems to accumulate in some way, right? For for a reader to be like the I in this poem is the same I in that poem is the same I, and you know that's that's kind of something I I strive for for sure.
0: Alicia?
2: Yeah, uh, the social media, I, I really liked that comparison. Yeah, I, I think I, I think about the narrator in my essays as like a facet of my personality, um, not, you know, and just like the way I act or the way I should act at work is different than the way <laughs> I'll act at home, right? You know, it's just, it's the same sort of thing. And so like on the page, I'm much more... Th- thoughtful and sincere than I will ever allow myself to be in front of (laughs) most people in real life and that's Mm. just kind of like the truth of it um you know uh but in terms of like I'm I forget who said this Lee Gutkind maybe somebody very you know fancy Mm. and non-fiction um but he called it you know it's the making of not the making up and so it's like okay how do you make Make meaning out of what's been given to you, um, and I'm a big believer in like tipping my hand when I'm doing something that's not when I when I'm imagining something or I'm putting something together. Uh, but yeah, it's it's always it's always me. I think the the most persona e poem poem essay <laughs> in my collection um, is withdrawal, where it's like the doctor's voices. Um, but I felt really comfortable doing that just because, like, it was so obviously not a deceit. You know what I mean? Right. Like, people aren't going to read it and think, like, "Oh, wow, she got four yeah. doctors to all write this one document together." Like, no one thinks that. <laughs> um, so I felt okay with doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, yeah, compositing is such a is a such a um, useful tool, <laughs> I think, in, in literature. Uh, And, like, kind of to Ariel's point earlier, like, sometimes some things just work better in the first person. Like, if it's something that happened that's adjacent that was really interesting, sometimes on the page, or even in comedy, almost especially in comedy, it just works better from the eye perspective, because the audience just has so much more room for um, relating to it, but also just, like, I don't know I think I'm trying to say like when I read I want to feel in a way a direct connection to the writer even when I read fiction in the third person somehow I still kind of feel that way like that there's no one else around and so I think sometimes moving things into the first that didn't actually happen to you is just a tool to keep this kind of I don't want to say fake, but like a fake closeness <laughs> between the writer and the reader, uh, if that makes any sense.
2: Um, I mean, it's yeah. like that, that, that intimacy that you want yeah. of feeling like you're putting your head under the water. And that's like what reading a good book is like. Like you put it down, you're like <gasps> coming up for air.
0: Mm-hmm. You
3: know? Yeah, especially I think, um, which which is something that we're both doing. I think when you have a book made up of smaller pieces that you all want to be connected and and to build something larger in the book, right? You you have to kind of maintain when you get close, you can't pull too far away, right? By having that that third person or like too far away from that perspective that you've built.
1: So this is along the lines of like persona and, and um, just kind of seeing yourself on the page. I was in a call with uh, Jessica Jacobs and Nicole Brown last night about the persona and they were talking about the importance of uh, defamiliarization with yourself because you're so used to seeing yourself and kind of seeing yourself as a character in fiction almost will help that. Um, And we talked about, it sounds so kind of abstract, but like, what is your face besides just your face? And so my my question, um, well, what struck me is that correlating with um, the essay inheritance, Mm -hmm. Alicia. And I'm so curious just on a personal level with the photos. And how they kind of landed in your collection and what that process was like.
2: Yeah, so uh, I knew I needed to write a chapter slash essay about my family. What I was going to write about went through a number of different iterations. Because even though like, you know, my mom pops up like in an apology, for example, um, but you know, the genetic aspect of like mental illness or like the, you know, uh, environmental aspect of like mental illness is like something that I felt I could not just like leave out of my book about misdiagnosed mental illness. Um, so that, so part of it is like, I don't want to say a dodge, but like kind of a dodge, you know, and that like, I might write nonfiction, but like that doesn't mean I'm going to tell you everything about my life or like put people on blast in a way that like I'm not comfortable with. Um, so part of it is a dodge. Um, but in terms of like the actual photos themselves, I don't know if this is like a biracial kid thing or what, but um, at one of the many AWPs that I cannot parse out anymore, um, <laughs> Izzy Garcia, who has a new chat book out, by the way, called Homegrown Fairy Tale. Um, she was on a panel with a couple other people uh, and it was like about mixed race writing. And it was the first time in my life that I had been in a room full of people who looked like me. And the experience was just like so arresting. Like even now I'm like ugh, shaking, like almost gonna cry mm. thinking about it. because wow. it just never happened to me before. Um, and so to me, the idea of like not really fitting in has always been like a physical manifestation and not something that like is hide it hide a, hideable that's not a word but that's okay doesn't matter um, <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it's not a piece of writing
2: <laughs> you can make
0: up words on a podcast
2: um and also because um people who have met my parents like especially my dad are always shocked when they meet my dad because my dad unless you have my mom also like looks nothing like me, like you need both of them to like make sense. Right. And so it's just, it's just something I've always sort of known about myself. Um, and so as I started like piecing together these ideas about like, all right, so what do, what do we literally like inherit from our, from our families? Um, it's just impossible like not to talk about the body, right? Especially when you're talking about the mind as well. Um, so that's how that happened. Uh, just in terms of like why I chose to incorporate the images I like I said I went to a, a multi-genre MFA and like one of the genres we had a cartoonist um who oh, was one of the cool. faculty who was amazing so I got to take like cartooning classes um so cool. you know my approach to writing has always been very much just like make cool stuff man what do you want to make um yeah yeah Yeah, that's just kind of like my my ethos um, when it comes to like making things like that. Um, So I did ask my parents permission to put their photos in. Uh, My grandmother is dead and I did not ask my aunt, actually. So we'll see how that turns out. (laughs) And
0: and I think the photos are something that also kind of in a way increased that intimacy that we were kind of talking about before. Like I, I always think of the term now, um, parasocial relationship. I don't know if you're all familiar with that term, but it's like the term like where you feel really close to someone you don't actually know, and so they can't reciprocate it at all. But you still think about it. So like certain like podcasts, for instance, not necessarily this one, right? But like I think of like Mark Marin. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with him and his podcast, where he has like a level of confession and like a level of can, uh, uh, a candidness that as a listener, and like you kind of see his fans, like there's like this like, I don't know if he's the best example. I mean, there's a million examples. I could think of most essayists and many poets that I, that, that, that also kind of bring this out in people where you feel like you know them in a way mm-hmm. And you have some court, some sort of like empathy, you mm-hmm. almost in a way love, but it's not love because it's unreciprocated and you don't really know them. You just know the kind of construction. Um, and so I think kind of photos sometimes when I've seen them in essays almost in, in increase that um, because for so many people like photos feel so real, like, um, I don't know do you understand what i'm getting at am i
2: (laughs) i think i do you know like susan sontag has that like on photography essay um i i think also like for me part of it was that old impulse where like i don't know if you like maybe like the early 2000s the, the non-fiction books would always have this like in the middle this like insert of like a couple slick pages and it would all mm. be like photos oh yeah
1: mm-hmm. the um, glossy so, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so
2: that was part of like also what I was you know pulling from um in this idea I don't know that, that's just those are the books I, I grew up reading where like even if they're really like dense like I remember reading a book about like czar alexander right or whatever and like in the middle you still have pictures of like all the princesses and stuff and so it seemed it didn't seem totally out of place to me if you're talking about people um to then include that and there's something i wanted to ask ariel that was related to this which is now escaping me um oh but it was also like uh, just thinking about like uh, that false sense of intimacy like I think to write nonfiction and to write autobiography um, with distance, like you need to have your shit together. (laughs) Like you have to be able to have some sort of like ability to look at yourself objectively or otherwise like you, if you've been in a creative writing workshop, this might've happened to you. you know, you read somebody's work and you're like, I don't know what to say because it's not a craft problem. The problem is like, you're wrong. Like, your basic <laughs> understanding, your premise of life is incorrect. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong. That's I, useful I feedback. I think this has happened to you.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're yes. definitely right.
0: <laughs> Um, Are there any writers for both of you, I guess, where you feel like you have that kind of parasocial relationship where like that that really kind of strike that chord in you? In a way, like, because one of the, like, the thing about the parasocial relationship that's so interesting to me is like, there's like a falsity to it, right? It's not a relationship, but at the same time, there's like a level of healing that can happen or like a level of... I don't want, like, I don't, because I don't think healing is the right word, but it's like a level of, like, that that intimacy, that, like, false intimacy you get from the page can really do something to you and really open you up and, like, teach you to be vulnerable in certain ways, if you understand what I'm getting at. Are there any, right, and if you can't, it's fine. Um, Are there any writers you can think of where, when you read them, you kind of feel that weird, like, intimate comfort that kind of, like, it's not you, but it almost feels like it could be.
3: Well, well um, <laughs> I think this is uh, cheating a little bit because she was one of my teachers, but um, Denise Duhamel's work, I, I think does that for me as a poet, because um, she does, and she's been writing for a long time now. Um, so I, you know, when I read her first book that came out in 1993, right she has that very consistent eye for the most part that that, that's where I learned that from and then I read like her most recent book and it's like oh this is you know this is the same eye 30 years later like that's super super interesting and not not to like impose it that that's the real person but even just reading it it's like oh wow this is like that that kind of continuity is is kind of um amazing to me um yeah, I don't know if that like really answers the question. The other person is Patty Smith, uh, mm. with just from just kids. Like, I I don't know. I just want to give her a hug. Like, I just hope to <laughs> like run into Patty Smith one day somewhere in New York City. Yeah. Um,
0: and then she'll yeah. be like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I know you because I read the book.
0: <laughs> Do you? Can you think of anything, Alicia? It's okay if you can't. Um,
2: no, I can think of a lot, which is why yeah. I'm making this face. Actually, um, <laughs> I would say like one of the Big ones is Carmen Machado, um, yeah. Like I loved um, her body and other parties, and I loved her essays. And then I read in the Dream House, and then I like read her perfume reviews in uh, get <laughs> yeah, what her the, that magazine that just Vanity Fair maybe. I just I and she like did a thing in Eater recently about like her polyamorous relationship and they're like cooking food, and I just like. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in love with Carmen Machado. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, And yeah, she's absolutely like one of the big ones. Where like, and I would never like, and I've heard her read before, like at politics and prose. Mm -hmm. um, And it was just like it took everything I had to like not like, you know, I'm just like sitting in the audience like, don't squeal. (laughs) This is fine. Don't squeal. (laughs) Give her her space. You know, being a total fucking weirdo. Mm -hmm. So yes, the short answer.
0: Yeah. I found, I I kind of, in both of your answers, I find it interesting that it's, it's people you mentioned who have multiple books, right? And so, and I almost wonder if, like, how that feeling is something that happens over time in terms of body of work rather than just one book. Or, like, in the example I gave about, like, the podcast, it's not, like, one podcast that makes me feel a certain way. It's, like, the the amount of time I've spent, the amount of opportunities I've had to um, be able to do that. So I guess I'm going to turn this into a question. (laughs) And that question is kind of, do you view, or I don't want to say do you view, because it's not really a yes or no answer, to what degree maybe when you think about yourself as a writer or you think about the pieces you write, maybe just a poem or just an essay or a book of poems or a book of essays, maybe to what degree do you think about your writing as a body of work versus a thing that you're writing mm-hmm. in that moment? So either one of you, if you feel like you can jump in on that.
3: Uh, well, I, I always do. And and when I was younger, to almost like a comical extent, I would keep everything I wrote in a folder called the collected poems. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so I I, Yeah, I just kind of always do. It's kind of interesting, um, even in like a short amount of time to, because it's fun to imagine like somebody in a hundred years, like however, you know, if I die tomorrow, I still have two books, for somebody to like read your work as a whole, right? Um, With with poets in particular, because eventually, or I mean, at least with some of them, you know, you read, they get like the collected works that comes out and some people read that. Like me, you know, I read Allen Ginsberg I didn't read Howell or any of the little books, I read like the whole thing front to back. Um, same with like James Wright, same with Sylvia Plath. Um, and it, it does like change the way that that you receive the work, but it's also super interesting to look at it um, kind of, I don't know if critically is the right word, but to look at the way somebody's work changed over time, especially if you love their work, it's, it's kind of just fascinating. Um, to look at what they were doing in this period of time, uh, how that changed, if they were successful, right, with a certain book, and then what comes after that. Um, especially if it's someone like, like Plath or like Kafka, who I also love, who, you know, we have like their letters and their diaries mm-hmm. to like read that parallel to what they were producing at the time. Um, and I had, uh, I took a, a summer workshop once with um, Carolyn Forche, And she advised us, I think I was like 22, we were mostly like undergrads. And she said, you know, you should always be reading all the time, but what you should do like in the summer, since we were students presumably would have summer off, is spend the whole summer with like one writer and just read like kind of as much of them as you can to get that kind of larger scope. Um, And I've always found that to be super interesting, but also just like, I don't know if useful is the right word. and I know it's kind of insane to like think about work that you haven't written yet, not in a creative way, but just like imagining, um, but it's also kind of interesting because it changes, right? When, when you produce a new thing, you do add it on to like what you've produced so far, right? Uh, and that can change, it can kind of resonate backwards in a different way uh, and alter the, the previous work or at least the way it's perceived. Um, so yeah, I, I do definitely think about that, um, but I'm aware that it is kind of insane and, and crazy.
0: I guess in a way kind of to your point like the body of work almost creates its own narrative arc
3: yeah yeah it definitely does and I think individual pieces do that too I mean I'm I'm sure like essays and and poems sometimes you're like oh I thought we were going this way but but we're going this way now okay I guess we're going wherever the thing wants to go sometimes Mm -hmm.
0: that makes me think of a question which I'm going to try to remember because I want to hear Alicia's answer and then after I'll see if I remember this question but go ahead Alicia
2: well, now I'm thinking about like writers who's like, you know, I've sort of read en masse and like there's not very many um, and I wonder if it's like a prose versus, because like sometimes I feel like I could literally spend my life reading and I would still have books left unread that I wanted yeah. to read, but yep. like Faulkner, Kundera, Calvino, Maggie Nelson and Helen Oyeyemi are like probably the f- only five Oh, and Dennis Johnson. So there's like six writers who I can like confidently say, like I've read most of their work. But I think that's really it. But I also always forget stuff. But I'm thinking about that. Um, I don't think about things a lot. Um, (laughs) That's going to be the
0: quote we put for you. I don't don't think think about things things.
2: a lot. Um, Yeah, I mean, I sort of... Like, I remember being 25 and living in Indiana. And at the time, the person I was with, I was dating, like, owned their own house. And um, it just, like, came up. They were like, well, what do you, what do you want to, where do you want to be in five years? And I just kind of, like, blinked. And I was like, I really thought, like, I really thought I'd be dead by the time that I turned 30. Like, I really haven't done a lot of long-term planning. Um, and so part of like this decade of my life has been like this strange sort of realization and like relief and also terror that I am fat. I am very likely going to continue to live for a number of years. <laughs> and what am I gonna do with this time <laughs> that I am on this earth? Um, and so with my work, like I'm working on a second book project um, but I also have like all these little things floating around that don't necessarily cohere to one another Um, and I still want them to like exist in some fashion even if they don't cohere but yeah no I'm not real good with like the long-term planning that's not a not a strong suit of mine I
0: guess for you it'll just kind of take care of itself (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's see if I can remember the question I had and then I will Stop asking so many questions so Ryan can ask a question. Sorry, <laughs> sorry Ryan. Uh, my question is like, what, for Alicia, like for your for those six and Ariel for for however many that you've read a large body of work, where do you start? Do you start at the newest and go backward? Do you start at the first and go forward? Do you start in the middle and bounce around?
2: am the most chaotic good person like I'm so firmly chaotic good like I don't start any I start where I found a book Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I liked it and I'm like oh cool let me get the next one and the next one is like whatever I run into at a used bookstore next Mm -hmm. um I'm not a very methodical person or it's like you know what's available at the public library Mm -hmm. um so that's my method.
0: Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, Ariel, do you have a, a, a method, quote unquote, or? or you... No,
3: it's it's similar. It depends how uh, I encounter them. If I find someone and they have a book that I really like, and I'm like, oh, I should read. Um, my reaction, as as you can see, <laughs> is to try to find everything I can by someone when I like their work. Um,
0: She's so, pointing to a lot of books, that... by the way. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. My dad, I my dad has I think twice as many books as I do. Wow, I can't just imagine. He has like, he has like a little over three thousand. Wow. Um,
0: oh my god. Yeah, <laughs>
3: and, and that's the kind of house I grew up in. So it's like, uh, it's I I've always wanted to like have my own library and like when I because I work kind of chaotically. Let's um, just like show you my desk really quick. It's just like. Yep, this. <laughs> and then I even though I live in a studio, I got myself like a little library cart because I always wanted wow. one. Wow. <laughs> Your entire cool. apartment oh, I'm is jealous. just books everywhere. Yeah. You but know, that that over there, that's like on my left and on my right are my to read piles. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it is very chaotic. Um but sometimes uh I think with poetry, because things are shorter, there are poets that's like, oh, like you kind of have to read them or like, you know, people will like keep telling you that you should read this person and then you might read a poem and they're like oh yeah I should read them and then their collected poems is like this and it's like well all right we'll start from page one uh, and kind of go through there um which is not a good idea I I gave up on like like that's how I read Ginsburg when I was like 21 you know it's like oh let me and his collected is like a thousand pages so like yeah let me just read this front to back uh and that that you know I ended up like hating him and putting it down for a year and be like no wait but people like alan ginsburg i should keep reading this uh and so yeah my methods are are again like intense but sloppy i get a lot of reading done but it's sometimes just whatever
0: yeah. I, I can literally get my hands on yeah ryan do you have a method or or do you ah. just kind of jump in i don't know
1: <laughs> my stack whatever calls out to me yeah i did t- it's never, I don't, I don't
0: have one. I was just wondering <laughs> if everyone else.
1: <laughs> um, I have a one last question and it is inspired from what Alicia said um, with ideas floating around constantly, just everywhere. I was just talking to my grandma today on the phone. And she's like, what are you writing? I'm like, hell if I know, um, <laughs> just, you know, everything. Um, and we were talking about this last week in the intro, Michael, and I was thinking to myself about like, when ideas come, what to do with them. So I have a very specific and kind of simple process question, which is, do you carry a journal? And do you make note when an idea comes to you immediately versus do you let it sit and then express itself within and then get it out on the page?
0: Good
3: question. I, yeah, I do. Again, well, I don't know if I can move again, but like all my journals are or over here. Um, and that's how I I was, I was a really bad student, not to like go on forever, uh, <laughs> but I was a very terrible undergraduate student. And uh, when I was finishing undergrad, when I was 21 going on 22, I had like no plan. I was like gonna finish college and didn't know what I was gonna do. And um, I wasn't writing poetry outside of workshop, which I know sounds kind of insane, but that's what really, why I started keeping notebooks I was like, if you're gonna be a writer, you actually have to do it and not just like turn it in for homework. Um, so I keep notebooks pretty meticulously and they're, they're kind of, again, chaotic. I date them, so it's like a journal, but anything, I just write it down. If I have an idea, I write it down. If I hmm. think of an image or a line, even just a word, if I'm like watching TV or reading something, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting word, use that in a poem, I'll like write that down. Um, but then the hard part is like revisiting Notebooks. so I'll write down everything and, right. but then when it comes time to write sometimes I'm like ah, I don't want to look at the other stuff that I
0: wrote down in there and Alicia
2: I um yeah I'm I'm a notebook keeper but not for that um I am like a, a bit of a freak with to-do lists uh so that's what my notebooks <laughs> that's are what for. mine's like too yes. yeah um yeah like I have a google <laughs> calendar and a notebook it's it's pretty it's pretty bad. Um, I I'm sporadic. I actually use the notes on my phone. Um I do too. yeah, just because like it usually happens late at night and like I don't want to wake up my partner who's like really sensitive to light. <laughs> um and like sometimes you know I learned the hard way. It was actually when I was writing when I was revising my book. And I I want you all to know I've never told anybody this, so you're all getting Woo-hoo. look. Uh, we're having a parasocial moment now. Um, <laughs> is, uh, I had a moment like falling asleep where I was like, this is what the fucking title of my book should be. I'll remember it tomorrow. it it has
0: gone.
3: Um,
2: oh. so that that so that was like a year or so ago. And so that was when I was finally like, I'd always sporadically written it down, but at that point I like sort of committed where I was like, all right bitch, like it. <laughs> really need to write it down. There's none of this. Oh, yeah, I'll remember it. Um, yeah, I use the notes app on my phone.
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like really adverse to using my phone to write. And then I started to, and I was like, this is amazing. Because I have two kids, so sometimes it's like I like I have an idea, and there's just like so much shit going on sometimes, and I'm just like, uh just just do this real fast, and then I can just kind of like slip it back away. um Anyway, yeah. so I definitely
1: I did, I relate did a, to that. I did a voice memo at a red light one time, and since that day, it just went on. You know,
2: voice memos. I so I quit smoking about a year ago, so I don't do this anymore, but. Uh, when I used to smoke cigarettes, I would drive around and just smoke. It was like one of my favorite things to do Um, and just like think. Um, And sometimes I would like, sometimes there would be voicemails while driving, yeah. but that hasn't happened since I
0: quit smoking. I'm going to show you, I have like a notebook, right? I want to like speaking of chaos, like that's like what a notebook yeah.
1: looks <laughs> like, <what's laughs> like for me.
0: <laughs> so I like, if I'm right here at my desk, I'll probably do it instead of on my phone. But yeah, it gets the chaos. Is, yeah. The chaos is real. So it's almost like the phone is like, helps you kind of as an organizing principle. But at the same time, I kind of like the chaos. Of, of the traditional notebook
2: i'm looking for i can't find it it's probably like on the coffee table but um i did start keeping a uh commonplace book finally oh,
0: i've heard uh, of the, i so i've only heard that phrase like in the last couple months so if any listeners don't know the phrase would you explain what a commonplace book is
2: yeah um well so it like goes back to like a bunch of like ancient greek stuff whatever whatever um but right now basically all it means is that like i'm keeping track of the books that i read um (laughs) in such a way that like so this is just my particular process is there are a couple of books that i'm reading uh specifically for my nourishment as a writer and then i have books that i just like i don't want to say just read for funsies because i think Mm -hmm. it all nourishes me as a writer but some i read with intention um and i'm a monster like i said chaotic good so i dog ear pages as i'm reading when i'm like yes. oh that's a great line and then when i finish the book i go back and i reread the dog-eared pages and i actually write by hand the like sentences i'll copy them down that i want to keep if it's a big section like like i'm reading raske's the book of delights right now and like some of mm. those i'm just going to photocopy because like i'm not going to copy two pages
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um but so that's that's how i'm using my commonplace book um do you do that, Ariel? I don't. Um, hmm.
3: Yeah. So my my notebooks are again like very organized and chaotic. So I I keep track of everything that I read, but because everything is like dated and time stamped, uh, it becomes super. So if I look back at an old notebook to like see what I was doing out there, what I was working on, and it'll be like reading Kafka's diaries, and it's like 2:45 a.m. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So it creates this kind of, and then the next thing will be like a uh, thought for a poem. So if, like it helps me remember or maybe even realize how things occurred to me sometimes, you know? So it, it everything is kind of um, in my notebook. And I, I, I also like write quotes longhand uh, and I started keeping another one. So I started keeping a quote book of like the quotes that I write down, but also like when I wrote them, mm-hmm. uh, so like, <laughs> there's I think in like 2015 I only wrote down one quote you know so it seems like really dramatic to look at it like
0: that's the only do you thing remember what the quote year. was
3: because
0: um, <laughs> it so must be a very important quote if you only
3: wrote yeah well I probably like that's the thing it probably wasn't it's, it was, <laughs> yeah right I think it was 2014 where it's just uh yeah oh there's two there's one from Chase Twitchell um it's like the ending part of a poem. Whenever I look out at the snowy mountains at this hour and speak directly into the ear of the sky, it's you I'm thinking of. I think I was very much in love. At that <laughs> point. And then the only other one, and these are both from January, this is January 3rd and January 6th, and then there was nothing else. And this one is... Uh, Sounds
0: like a New Year's resolution
3: going <laughs> around. Or the failure of one, I think. Yeah. The, one. the second quote is, we are nothing but a poet's dream." So this very dramatic 24-year-old me, that's the only things that were worth writing down in all of 2014 for me.
0: Well, maybe we are nothing but a poet's dream. <laughs> or an essayist dream.
1: <laughs> Thank you for listening to our episode with Ariel and Alicia. Don't forget to look at our YouTube page to see their readings. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our magazine online as well.
0: Yep. And uh, both those books uh, that Ariel and Alicia came out with this year were from Borough Press, who is taking subscriptions for their 2021 catalog, which I am a subscriber to, and I'm very excited Same. for it. I know. So <laughs> join us
2: <laughs> as One of us. One of us.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> goodbye.